I, along with our five-month-old, moved to Harrisonburg to start working with RUF. If you're not familiar with RUF, RUF is a campus ministry. Um, it's, the, it's our denomination's campus ministry, actually. And so I've been called by the church to be a pastor and to be a friend to college students. So last night, we had 30 students in my basement for only 30 minutes during a progressive dinner, and it was the most hectic thing I've ever done, um, but also an incredibly joyful time to be with them. So Psalm 120, uh, if you've got it in front of you, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand as we read God's Word. So listen, this is God's Word. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. God, we come before you thankful that you are not a distant God, but you're near to us, and we know that because you're a God who speaks, that we have your word. So we're thankful that you give us your word to direct us how we can glorify and enjoy you. You give us your word so we know all we need when it comes to salvation, when it comes to godliness in our own lives. So Lord, as we come to your word today, many of us are in different places. Some of us feel like we have all the energy in, in the world on a Sunday morning. Many of us wrestled children into minivans to get here, and we're tired. But wherever we are, Lord, we know that you meet us in these moments by your Spirit, so we ask that you'd be with us. Lord, use your word, use this time to make Jesus, your Son, more beautiful, more believable, um, more good and more true to us. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're looking at Psalm 120. Um, and Psalm 120 is part of this collection in the book of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascents. Um, and these are songs that God's Old Testament people, as they would make their way up to Jerusalem for three different holy days and feasts, they were songs that they would sing as they were literally hiking, essentially up mountains to get to Jerusalem. Um, in some ways, like if you were walking to the ski resort on Massanutten, which is near Harrisonburg, from where you're sitting right now, it would be a similar journey to that. Um, and these psalms, these psalms of a sense that the Israelites would sing, were songs that they would sing for their excitement. They're songs that they would sing to prepare them for the journey. And Christians, like God's Old Testament people, are on a similar journey. But instead of going to Jerusalem, our, our destination is the new Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Um, instead of going to this city where God dwells and then going back home, we as Christians are on this journey to go be with God for eternity. We're, we're, not going any, we're going there, we're not going back home. We're staying. All right, and with that being said, you might be wondering, how does this psalm that we just read fit into this? Because Psalm 120 feels somber, right? It doesn't feel like something that you would sing while you were hiking in your excitement somewhere. But what this psalm highlights is that we can't begin our journey to the place where God dwells 
unless we see that we have a need for something greater. We need to see the world, we need to see ourselves clearly before we can begin this journey. Um, one thing about me is I wear glasses, and they're real. They're not just for show. Um, I've had people ask me that before, which is an odd question. Um, and one of the things about me is I didn't grow up wearing glasses. I got glasses as a college student, um, and it's because I would sit in the front of my classes, and I couldn't see the slides on the screen. And so for months, maybe even years, I denied that I had bad vision. And then eventually I accepted reality, and I went to the eye doctor. And the eye doctor said, yeah. Bailey, you need glasses. So I went online like a good millennial, took my prescription and ordered glasses. And they showed up to my college apartment and I put them on and I instantly knew that my vision was terrible because for the first time it felt like I could see clearly. Um, it even got to the point where I got these glasses on and I got in my car to drive, which retrospectively, not the best idea. And I drove by a Bojangles, right, the fried chicken place, if you guys are familiar. And it was at night, and the sign and the colors were so vivid to me that it was like the sign was in 3D. It was jumping out at me. Um, and that's when I realized, yeah, I have bad vision, right? It wasn't until that I could see clearly that it, my glasses changed the way I saw the world around me. Glasses showed me that I needed something greater. I needed help. When we place our faith in Jesus, what he does is he changes the way we view the world around us. He changes the way we view ourselves. I think this is what the psalm wants us to see. So we're going to break this down just in two really simple ways. If you're a note taker, this is for you. It's in the bulletin somewhere. Um, we're going to see two things. That Jesus helps us understand the world, and Jesus helps us understand ourselves. So let's dive right in. Jesus helps us understand the world. It's through Jesus we're enabled to see what's true about the world that we live in. Look at verse 2 with me. The psalmist writes this. It says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Right, the psalmist here, he's crying out to God to be delivered, and he's specifically asking for God to deliver him from the things around him, right? from the lies, from the deceitfulness that surrounds him. And we get more of this crying out in verse 5, where the psalmist writes, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Um, here the psalmist, like Kedar and Meshech are two geographically like really far places. What the psalmist is saying is that he lives with people and around people who disregard the living and true God. He lives around people who are idolaters, right, who act like God isn't real and live like God isn't real. So the world, well, let's say this. What's clear is that the psalmist, he looks around and he sees lies, he sees deceit, and he sees idolatry all around him. And the world that you and I live in is no different than the world the psalmist lives in. All right, we're constantly bombarded with lies, we're often sold a bunch of lies, and we, when we buy into these things, we realize that these lies that we chase after, the things the world gives us, they overpromise and they underdeliver. Here's some examples. One thing culturally, one thing in our world we see a lot of is that our worth is tied up in our work. So when we buy into that lie, we become workaholics. 
right? We grind. We put all our effort into our work because we think that ultimately our value is found in what we do, right? We neglect our friendships. We neglect our families, we, our children, our spouses. We constantly stress about our work. But what happens when things fall apart and that's our disposition, when we become workaholics, when we think our worth is found in our work? Right? What happens is we fall apart when we get a bad performance review. If we get fired, we lose our cool. We think that we're not going to be okay because of that. Here's another example. We often are told that if we find the right person, if we enter into the right relationship with them, we'll be happy. We'll never want anything again. Right? It's the Disney fairy tale. Um, so what do we do? We look for someone, we find a relationship, and we throw everything we have into it. But there's also a problem with that. Because at a certain point in relationships, you'll realize that it wasn't all it's cracked up to be. You don't feel as happy as you thought you would. And then you feel disenchanted because you're not happy, and you thought this was going to bring happiness to you. Ultimately, um, the lies, the deceit that the world is filled with is what the Bible would call idolatry. Right? We think, um, when, we, when we go after idols, what we're doing is we're thinking that we can rely on worldly things to fulfill us and to give us the things that only God can give us. And what we do is we find these idols and we make the appropriate sacrifices to it because we think that it'll give us the desired results. Right? But rather, rather than trusting in what God has for us, we say, we need to control. We want to do this ourselves. So when the psalmist is looking around him, and he's seeing the lies and the deceit and the disregard that his neighbors have for God, what's clear is that he wants something better. He says, this isn't it. I need something better. What Jesus offers us is different. It's 100% different than what the world offers us. Right, the world offers us to strive without ceasing. What Jesus calls us to do, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus offers us rest. The world offers us endless opportunities and endless things to try to find our own fulfillment in. Jesus invites us to find our fulfillment in him. The world offers us slavery to sin. Jesus offers to break the bondage of our sin. He does that when we place our faith in him. Jesus gives us the freedom to see the world for what it truly is, to see the lies and the deceit and the idolatry, and to live in a way that reflects what's really true about the world. And what's really true about the world first is that God created the world, and he called it good. But once sin entered the world, the world was cursed, and it's still broken. But the hope that we have in in Jesus is that Jesus will return and he'll make all things new. And that includes the world around us. The brokenness of the world will be restored. The curse will be lifted. Right, Jesus invites us to see what's true. Um, so before I went to seminary, I worked for RUF. Um, RUFs are like all over the country. It's not just at JMU. Um, I was an RUF intern at the University of Florida, which Gainesville, Florida is the hottest place in the world. I don't recommend going there. Um, and one of the things, my job as an RAF intern was just to kind of walk along the freshmen and sophomore men in the group and just disciple them. And if there's anything that I did a lot of as an RAF intern, it was help these guys break up with their girlfriends. 
because I would, you know, meet these guys and we would, you know, we'd play ping pong or something because they don't like to drink coffee because it's, again, too hot. And we would, we'd play ping pong or we'd eat lunch and I'd ask them about their girlfriends and they would say, oh, I like my girlfriend, she's great. And they'd be lying through their teeth because they were really unhappy and they didn't want to admit it. So over time, after I felt like I knew them well enough, I would always kind of say something to them along the lines of, hey man, I know you don't like your girlfriend and you don't like being with her and it's okay for you to break up with her. And they would, they'd hear that, they'd sit quietly, then they'd leave, and they'd go break up with their girlfriends. Um, and their girlfriends did not like me, which is fair. It's fair. What I was trying to do with these guys was just to invite them to see what was really true about their relationships, but at the same time trying to give them the freedom to act on what's true. Jesus is inviting you to see the world for what it truly is. It's beautifully created by God. It's marred by sin. It's expectantly awaiting Christ's return. And when Jesus works in us and he shows us what's true about the world, we're actually able to see the idols that the world offers us. And we can turn away from those things that we've trusted in the past, maybe even things we're trusting right now. We can turn from those and turn to Jesus, trusting that he will give us what we need. And we're able to do that because of God working in us through Jesus. And so since Jesus gives us the freedom to see the world clearly, we ought to ask ourselves, where am I being willfully blind? What are the idols in my life that I'm refusing to see? We need to see that the things we're chasing, because the world tells us that it'll give us the good life, or comfort, or prosperity, or security, are idols, and we need to turn away from those things and to turn to Jesus in repentance. We need to trust Him. We need to be asking for new obedience. So what does this look like? Just one example. Maybe for you, you think success is what you need. If you're successful, people will take you seriously. If you're successful, right, you'll be okay. You'll never want anything more. You think landing the perfect job having the right amount of zeros on your paycheck will make all your problems go away. It'll give you meaning. All right, so what do you do if that's you? Right, you, try to, you try to become successful. You watch the videos on YouTube of successful people telling you how to be successful. Right? You neglect your friends and your family. You, f- you stop resting. Right? You become transactional in your relationships. You say that I'm only going to associate with people that can bring me where I want to go. My question is, when we see that idolatry, how do we turn from it? What does that look like? One, it looks like maybe resting. It looks like being a friend for the sake of being a friend. It looks like seeing Jesus and looking to him, seeing that your worth isn't tied up in your success, but it's tied up in what Jesus has done for you. It looks like identifying our worldly desires that we're chasing after, confessing them to God turning in repentance. So Jesus invites us to see the world around us clearly. Um, So we might see the ways that we trust the world more than we trust Jesus. But that's not the only thing that I think we see here in this psalm. Um, We need to understand our world clearly, but there's another piece to this puzzle. We also need to understand ourselves clearly. That's our next point. Jesus is the one that helps us see ourselves clearly. Um, It's Jesus who 
opens our eyes to what's true, not only about the world, but it's Jesus who opens our eyes to what's true about ourselves. Look at verse 1 with me. What's the first thing the psalmist writes? He says this. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. The psalmist here is crying to God for help. And there's two things that we can see about this. It's that first, the psalmist cries out to God because he knows that he needs help. He's weak. He's needy. He can't do it on his own, right? You don't call out for help if you don't think you need it. The psalmist needs help. But secondly, we see that God is near to the psalmist. He answers his cry. And as we talk about the psalmist's cry, I really want to be careful here and just be really precise with how I say this. Um, What I want you to see about the psalmist crying out for help against these things outside of himself is he's not crying out for help because he thinks he's a good moral person and he's afraid of these factors outside of himself corrupting him. It's actually that the psalmist knows that sin is in his heart, that idolatry, lying, deceitfulness lives in him. Right? And you and I both are in the same place as the psalmist. It's because we're sinners. The default setting of our hearts isn't morally good, like some people would try to lead you to believe. It's actually not even morally neutral. It's not in a middle ground. We're actually morally corrupt. We're actually sinners. Um, Our hearts are bent towards disobeying God. Our hearts are bent towards loving things that we shouldn't love, right? Our hearts are bent towards what we want over what God wants and what God calls us to. So that means that we aren't simply drawn to disobey God by factors outside of ourselves, but it's actually our own heart is bent towards doing things that God doesn't want us to do. And so what I really want you to see with that is that left to ourselves, you and I would never see what's true about us. We would never see that we're sinners. All right, we don't have the ability on our own to understand the fact that we're sinners and that we need the saving grace of God. It's only through God working in us by Spirit that we can see that we're sinners and that our sin separates us from God. But the good news is that when God reveals to us that we're sinners, and when we see we don't measure up to God's law, we at the same time see that we have not only a great need for a Savior, but a great Savior for our need, and that's Jesus. That Jesus left the comforts of heaven to take on human flesh and to live a perfectly sinless life. He came to perfectly obey God's law and to take the punishment that we as sinners and lawbreakers deserve. And when we put our faith in him, he unites himself to us, and he gives us the righteousness that he earned as a gift. So what becomes true of us then, if our faith is in Jesus, is that we're redeemed. We're adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. What's true of us is that God is sanctifying us. He's making us new. He's, over time, changing our hearts and our desires towards him. What's true of us is that we're loved, we're accepted, We're cherished by God. Like in Christ, that's what becomes most true of us. Um, I grew up in a household that wasn't allowed to watch Harry Potter. This is a Harry Potter illustration, if you can't tell. Um, If you watch, I've watched the movies. I haven't really read the books. If you watch the first Harry Potter movie, Harry lives in a cupboard under the stairs, which is like a closet for us Americans. 
Um, and he's never been told he's anything special. He doesn't think anything, you know, highly of himself. And so weird things start happening in the town where Harry lives in. Owls start trying to deliver him mail. No one knows what's going on. And then this wizard guy, this giant wizard named Hagrid shows up. And Hagrid's kind of like, well, Harry, you know why this is happening, right? And Harry's like, no, I don't, I don't know what's happening. And Hagrid tells Harry something that is 100% true about Harry, but also 100% unbelievable to Harry. And Hagrid looks at Harry and says, you are a wizard, Harry. And Harry is astonished. He's like, that can't be true. He says, I'm not a wizard, I'm just Harry. And Harry hears something that's unbelievable. He tries to deny it. But what Hagrid does is he comes into, Harry, into Harry's home and he reveals what's already true about Harry, that he's a wizard. Right? He's inviting him to see what's true about himself. The gospel reveals what's true of you and of me. Tim Keller highlights this really well. Um, he says it like this, but the gospel, the good news is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet, at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, what becomes true of you is that you are loved, you're accepted, and you're cherished, you're adopted all by God. Because it's true that Jesus reveals to us that we're sinners, and that by faith in Him, He gives us a new identity, that should shape the way we see ourselves. Right? Knowing that we're sinners should, should drive the way that we understand ourselves, and knowing that we're sinners, it should drive us to be honest about our own sin. Right? First, it means that we should be honest with God, that when we sin, we can confess our sin to God knowing that in Christ we're forgiven. Right, we can turn away from it. We can ask for new obedience. Secondly, it should cause us to be honest with one another. Right, sin thrives in the darkness. It dies when we bring it to light. Knowing the forgiveness of Jesus means that we can confess our sin to one another. We can pray for one another about our own sin struggles. We can have accountability with one another. This is something we desperately need. This is something that's so beautiful about the church is we get this in the church. Seeing our sin, seeing the forgiveness we have in Christ, gives us the freedom to bring our sin into the light instead of hiding it. And knowing the forgiveness of Christ, it also affects the way, it affects the way we deal with our sin, and it also affects the way that we deal with our own failures. Because sin dwells in us, we are always going to fight sin in our lives until we see Jesus face to face. And often as Christians, when we sin, we feel like we can't confess our sin right away. We feel like we have to beat ourselves up. We have to make ourselves low before we can turn and ask for forgiveness. But the good news for us is that Jesus accomplished our forgiveness on the cross once and for all. Our forgiveness isn't conditioned on what we can do or what we can add to the equation. Jesus has accomplished it. So what that means is we can freely ask forgiveness of our sins without having to beat ourselves up without having to make ourselves low. Instead, we can remind ourselves that our forgiveness is a gift. It's freely given from Jesus. We can rest in that. We can confess our sin. So Psalm 120 
it gives us an invitation to see ourselves clearly and to see the world around us clearly. And it's an invitation not only to see ourselves in the world clearly, but to see the love that God has for us and to see that love that God has for us in Christ. So this is an invitation for you, maybe even for the first time, to see that you are truly sinful, to wrestle with the fact that every day that you break God's law in thought, word, and in deed. But at the same time, it's also an invitation to see Jesus, Jesus who came to earth from heaven to perfectly obey God's law, and Jesus who came to take the punishment you and I deserve for our sins. Right? And he's the Jesus who gives us the merit of his perfect obedience when we place our faith in him. In Jesus, we're forgiven, we're loved, we're accepted, we're cherished. So friends, as we can, are on this journey like the Israelites to this place where God dwells, my invitation is to see yourself clearly, to see the world clearly, right? so we can see Jesus clearly. Jesus, being the author and perfecter of our faith, invites us today to see ourselves, to see him clearly, so that we can look to him for forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for moving towards us that we know through your word that we would on our own never see our own sin, see our need for Jesus, but it's by you moving towards us that we're able to know you. So Lord, would you use this time, the rest of our worship, use your word to drive that truth in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.